When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. It's Gabriella here. Thank you so much for tuning to the podcast. I'm going to be double upping episodes this month until we hit 100. And we are very close to hitting the 100 mark in terms of episodes. We're now on episode 95. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Senator Cory Gardner, who just inked a very great legislative victory with the Great American Outdoors Act becoming law. And while it was a great bipartisan effort with members from both Republican and Democrat corners, he did help primarily get this across the finish line. So that was really cool to talk to him. And I was very grateful that he spoke to us here at District of Conservation. Today's guest on this Wednesday edition is Chef Andrew Gruel. Now, I don't know if you guys have Twitter or are familiar with the chain called Slapfish, but Andrew Gruel, who is the co-founder of it, will be joining us. I discovered him a few months ago after seeing, I think, a mutual connection of ours post about something related to Southern California. He lives in my hometown area of Orange County, which is really awesome. And he just posts these incredible food pictures that are really tantalizing, mouth-watering, and really want to make you eat more seafood. I have no problem eating seafood. I love fish. I'll eat seafood. But he started this company largely because he wanted to help people demystify unknown of fish because people are pretty picky when it comes to eating fish. But here is more information about Chef Gruel. Uh, he is a summa cum laude graduate of Johnson & Wills University, and he is the founder and executive chef at Slapfish Restaurant, which is the award-winning food truck turned international brick and mortar based out of Huntington Beach, California. And I've seen from past interviews that his goal is to make seafood sexy again, which I think is a funny tagline. The company was established in by Chef Gruel as a food truck, obviously, and they prioritize serving fresh, honest seafood. The concept has since become the fastest growing fast casual seafood restaurant in North America with over 20 brick and mortar locations and over 150 in development. How crazy is that? Known for its emphasis on sustainability and conservation, Slapfish is on a mission to, quote, make seafood sexy again, end quote, at an affordable price. The brand has been featured on Food Network, PBS, and Food and Wine, just to name a few. And if you want to check more about the restaurant, you can visit slapfishrestaurant.com. And Chef Gruel actually has made the rounds on TV, and his first TV appearance was in 2007 on the BBC program The Endless Feast. And among the multiple TV appearances he's made, he has served as a judge on the Food Network's food truck race-off, in 2014 and he has hosted the reality tv series on fyi called say it to my face in 2015 he is also the co-host of the so-called restaurant show on klaa which was launched in 2012 
Here is my conversation with Chef Gruel. Hopefully it makes you interested in eating more seafood and visiting his restaurant if there is a location near you. Chef Andrew Gruel, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. I discovered you recently on social media because I think you were posting about California business things and uh, fish and seafood and just living in SoCal. You live in my hometown area where I grew up. So I found that to be really, really cool. And I figured we should connect and you should share your story. Why don't you start with introducing yourself and uh, explain how you got wrapped into the food industry? Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, my name is Andrew Gould. I'm the chef and owner of Slapfish Restaurant Group uh, and a couple other restaurant concepts. Uh, we're based out of Southern California, Huntington Beach, specifically um, a little bit about Slapfish. It is um, really it's a it's a seafood concept that revolves around the idea of eating better, well-managed seafood. But really, our, our ultimate goal is to get people to eat more of the right types of seafood. Um, I started it actually as a food truck back in 2011 kind of roaming the streets of uh, Orange County nice. from uh, South County all the way up. And then we, we grew and scaled pretty quickly. I built it to scale. And then we opened our first brick and mortar in 2012. Um, we've got about 27 locations right now. And, uh, you know, just trying to spread that good, uh, fun seafood word. So that's a bit about Slapfish. Yeah. And did you grow up fishing, liking the seafaring type of life? What led you specifically to focus on uh Seafood. Yeah, well, my father was a pirate, and uh, no, I'm just kidding. The <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I always loved fishing, right? I did grow up fishing. I grew up in Jersey on the East Coast, um, and uh, you know, it was like fishing from a young age. Uh, all the cliched stories, you know, dad, son, etc. And when I got into food, I was really um, I was interested in seafood, right? And as I went through the ranks, I started noticing. A lot of different species of seafood change so quickly. And I just, you know, being a young apprentice, hearing different things about like, oh, this isn't available and that isn't available. I started studying uh, seafood as a, um, you know, a trade pretty closely, but more from the culinary side of things. And all, all the restaurants I was working at, seafood was always something I was focused on. And then um, when the economy kind of tanked in 2008, I guess it was, I had uh, gotten laid off from a, a chef job in New Jersey. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this opportunity to follow through on a passion project of mine, which really was in that kind of sustainable seafood space. I wanted to learn more about it. And I had an opportunity to start a nonprofit sustainable seafood program out at the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, California. And and, um, the real, the crux of the program was kind of similar to what our mission is now with Slapfish, is getting people to eat more of the right types of seafood, understanding seafood aquaculture, all the different elements educating both consumers and chefs more specifically on what sustainable seafood means. Um, most of the seafood, around 80% of the seafood we consume is consumed in restaurants. So if we can educate the chefs, um, then that'll trickle down to the consumer. And that was the, the, the crux of the program. And that really blossomed into um, Slapfish. And what uh, seafood or fish in particular do you guys focus on that your customers typically eat? Um, everything, right. So, you know, really it's, it changes frequently. Uh, the way I built the menu was it, it more of, more of, more of a framework, you know, there's some culinary architecture in there, but we can interchange and exchange the fish based upon seasonality, sustainability, new scientific data. But one of our, one of our main focuses is serving the underutilized species, right? Fish that maybe people don't know about. It's not always kind of that top three. It's, you know, um, lesser known species, a lot of bycatch, 
um, which are the, is the incidental catch within a fishery, and just getting people to appreciate seafood more in general. Yeah, and I think I had seen in my research of kind of some species you focused on, you've even focused on some freshwater. I think, yeah. you, I think you once have praised like blue cats, which are invasive here in the Chesapeake and kind of East Coast region, uh, and some other like less attractive fish, which are actually really good eating. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love Chesapeake blue catfish. Love the, um, um, you know, uh, like like you know, Lake Superior whitefish. A lot of the lake fish, but really into trout lately too. Um, I know you're a big trout fisher, yeah. fisher person. And uh, you know, I love what what's happening nowadays with a, a lot of trout aquaculture as well. Um, and then some of the more you know your steelhead species, kind of freshwater saltwater fish. Uh, you know, I wish I could say, you know, we would start serving alligator gar, but uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> we did do, we did try some carp ribs. Um, that was an interesting, that was an interesting experiment. Uh, so. No, I think people should get more comfortable eating fish. And I, I would say that I was reluctant, like, although I love fishing, like I am also an equal opportunity eater uh, when the conditions permit it, because so many people, and I mean, catch and is fine, especially if the conditions permit it or require to do it. But so many people I think are losing out on just eating this really great source of protein and packed with all these different vitamins and minerals that are essential for your health. Do you notice that full uh, customers in particular are interested in eating fish because they see that uh, their food is not being sourced properly? Because I think people want to eat and know where their food is coming from. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think the initial drive is the health and the sustainability and people understand and recognize that seafood is one of, is the healthiest protein. I mean, we did these surveys where I would ask people, you know, of a choice of protein, right? Chicken, beef, seafood, et cetera. And everyone unequivocally chose seafood, but yet we don't consume much seafood in the U S. So as we dug deeper into that conundrum, really it, it, um, exhibited that people want to eat more seafood. They're just confused about it because there's a lot of misconceptions in the press. And there's a lot of these ideas like mercury and PCBs and fish farming, et cetera. So at the end of the day, people just relegate to chicken. <laughs> yeah, that's a very safe choice. Kind of a bland choice. I love chicken, but yeah, I think a lot of the um, labels that are placed on and maybe certain species, I know swordfish certainly do contain high <laughs> contents of mercury, but I think a lot of kind of these, uh, inconclusive uh, thoughts on different fish kind of deter people from eating it. They get scared because it looks strange or the texture is kind of odd looking and they don't want to try it because it's kind of, it's not, a, uh, it's too adventurous for their taste buds. Exactly. And that was, and that's where from a culinary perspective, when creating slapfish, the goal is to actually allow our concept to almost be like a gateway. We target non-fish eaters. So every single time we get a Yelp review or some sort of a, a, a you know a comment or feedback that where someone says, I didn't eat seafood or I don't eat seafood, but I came here and it's changed my mind. It's changed my perspective. That's a huge win for us. That's awesome. That's a good way to convert people. In. And what are some typical menu items or popular menu items that customers enjoy? Um, well, we're well known for a lot of our lobster dishes, which really is kind of shooting fish in a barrel, pun intended. Uh, our lobster grilled cheese, half crab, half lobster, cooked to kind of a melting tenderness. But then on the on the um, you know the seafood side, uh, in terms of fin fish, are um, you know we do we we really pride ourselves on some massive sandwiches. Our, one of our taglines is "You'll cheat on your burger for this." So you know our our real fish sandwich. We do a Dagwood, which is really a fish and chips on a sandwich. We do and named after the old Dagwood cartoon, always building the sandwich. Um, 
all of our fish bowls and burritos are really, really popular. So we take comfortable, well-known dishes that people are already familiar with, and then we just pretty much add a seafood spin to it. That's awesome. That's that's a good way to get people who are skeptical to like fish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, talk about your experience on the Food Network. I think uh, some followers of yours, and I know a lot of people in politics are discovering your stuff, especially those who kind of follow what happens in California, too, about your uh, past work on Food Network. So what was that experience like? Um, it's great. I mean, look, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity, uh, um, it, it, it kind of germinated from when we were on the food truck, we did a, a short episode on cooking channel for, um, each street was the name of the show. And somehow one of the producers connected me back from that episode and they were looking to launch a new food truck series called food truck face off, which was a co-production between food network Canada and food network us. And they looped me into that as a judge, which was really exciting um, we shot a pilot and then that show got picked up. And then um, um, that I was fortunate enough from there to go and and, and uh, host and launch another show on FYI Network after it was purchased from, um, was it A&E? Um, and uh, we launched a show called Say It To My Face. Uh, and then I went back and did some Food Network judging as well. So it's been fun through this kind of business um, adventure, being able to pepper in some of the television and the media in addition. And you currently host a radio show, right? Yeah, I co-host a radio show out of SoCal here, uh, the SoCal Restaurant Show. It's actually right out, right out of the Anaheim Angels uh, Stadium Studios. Um, so nice, a great local show, food, wine, everything, travel. Yeah, you can't go. I mean, it's perfect for California. <laughs> yeah. California yeah. is the center of food and wine and and just all delicious goodness. Um, I do miss that about living in California. We, don't, we do have a little bit of a food culture here in the DC metro area, but not as, I would say, versatile as California, but it's getting fully but truly. Yeah, yeah. Look, grass is always greener. I always say I wish I was back on the East Coast. When I get into the DMV area, I'm so excited about the food. And then people are like, well, I'd rather be in California. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and I think actually one of your uh, franchises is in uh, Boston Mall. I haven't seen it yet. I've been in the mall, but I didn't see your uh, store there. And I think you guys opened a DC location in your opening, or you opened a Rockville, Maryland. Once so you guys are starting to get a little bit of some play here too, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah, we've got some great partners out there. The, the other one we're in, uh, in one Loudon, which is over in Ashburn. Oh yeah, that's a great area. I bet yeah. that's that's. I mean, despite COVID, I bet that's still kind of a, a good spot for people to visit. It is. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, kind of speaking of the virus, I know everyone talks about this, but I think I first took notice of your social media musings because you were talking about how I think uh, Gavin Newsom was placing further burdens on uh, the business. And I think across the country, people just see different small businesses or uh, conglomerates like you who employ franchisees uh, really struggling and just having a difficult time to kind of recalibrate and, and to kind of operate. So what has been your experience in these last few months? Has it been hard to do business? How about your employees? What are they uh, currently feeling? Yeah, I mean, it's tough on the employees. It's up. Uh, oh, sorry about that. You there? You're good. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, it's really tough on the employees. It, it's, um, you know, I, I uh, always want to be sensitive about what I say when it comes to COVID, but I, I've found that uh, I've, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you perfectly. Oh, okay, cool. Sorry, someone called in and it was 
but but I found it's a real sensitive topic, obviously. But at the end of the day, for us, it's about planning, right? So if we don't have the ability to plan the way in which the business is going to operate, and we're not getting much notice on a lot of these regulations, it's like they come down within seconds, and we have no no heads up on that, and then we're not getting local government support when it comes to a lot of the shutdowns or it comes to the restrictions. So, you know, I'm always, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I would classify myself to some degree as a limited government person. Um, and, but at the same rate right now, we need a lot of government assistance when it comes to navigating through these uh, restrictions and navigating through this gauntlet of what we should be doing or shouldn't be doing when it comes to coronavirus. So, you know, we've been, We've been kind of looking to the government to some degree, local governments, whether it's health departments, Orange County Department of Health, to say to us, hey, guys, here's how you should be setting up the restaurants, whether indoor, outdoor dining. And here's kind of a little, uh, you know, a calculus for success that we've seen within the restaurant industry. But there really isn't any of that assistance. So we've had to navigate that. And we've had to kind of try and figure out how we're going to hire and how we're going to operate. We don't necessarily know what's coming down the pipeline when it comes to um when it comes to, you know, employee restrictions and, 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 um, indoor, outdoor dining, et cetera. Yeah. I'd heard from friends back in Orange County, because Orange County, you guys were dealing with like beach closures and just these like ridiculous, uh, kind of overplayed moves from Sacramento to like specifically signaling out Orange County. And I know for businesses there, like it's a very tourist based economy. And if you don't have people, uh, kind of, uh, like uh, inputting their dollars into the area. It's really, really tough, even for an affluent area or a, a more um, economically prosperous area like Orange County. So I know for, for that region and especially San Diego too, it's been a little more challenging where you guys want to kind of do, uh, obviously within the confines of CDC regulations, but like give a little more leeway so people could actually operate their shops, open, uh, accommodate uh, different standards, have outdoor seating, things of that sort. So I know it's a little different all across California as to how the counties have been uh, treating the different businesses. But I know food operations just all across the country have had a difficult time. And I was just curious to see if yeah. how you're navigating that. You know, for us, it's just difficult because it seems very political, right? So, you know, Orange County's numbers were great and, and, and um, you know, really really doing well in the beginning, but then the restrictions kept coming down and specifically targeting Orange County. And then it starts with these lawsuits and then it just becomes about ego. And it pre- it's, it's really absurd when it gets to that level. And where I got very frustrated was leading into the 4th of July weekend. We had, that's our week in for our coastal locations where you go from, you really kind of go into profitability. And when it was like Wednesday before the 4th of July, they shut down all the beaches. Now, the one common denominator that we've all seen is, is that outdoor transmission is you know minimal and that being outdoors and being socially distant in areas, wide open air areas is a good thing. So they're shutting down the beaches, which that messaging was so confusing. And then we went like, for example, for us, our, our location, we're right in Laguna Beach on Broadway and PCH. I mean, you know, kind of main and main. We, uh, we did, I want to say we were down like, 75% of what we expected. So we purchased all this food for a huge weekend and they shut it down. We lost all the product and we didn't even come close to hitting our numbers, but yet all the people, all the tourists were already in town. Right. So then they all jam in the backyard barbecues as opposed to being out on the beach. And then three weeks later, they start talking about a spike and it's like, well, I mean, I think we can kind of follow, follow the timeline there. 
Yeah, that seems a little ridiculous <laughs> when it comes to things like that, especially at the cost it comes for business owners like yourself who are scrapping kind of the barrel to to you know keep operations open and to to fund your employees and all that. But it just seems like yeah, a lot of businesses are facing unnecessary regulation or um, uh, burdens. I would say on top of a uh, difficulty with maintaining uh, operations. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what else. Uh, Ooh, and let me, I can edit this out too, so don't worry. Um, but so I saw, uh, and I really love, I think uh, my listeners will appreciate the fact that you always post with your family, with your wife and your kids. And I saw that you posted with a tuna, a bluefin tuna. And you didn't get that yourself, or did you go fish for that? Or you you outsourced the uh, commercial fishermen to get that for you? Yeah, so we've got a lot of local fishermen here who have their commercial fishing license and, and wholesale license who um, just know that if they catch something last minute, um, we're going to buy it, right? So, like, I'm kind of their go-to, you know, their, their uh, gray market uh, fish fish dealer, if you will. I don't want to say black market because they're legal. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we've got guys that just go out. Most of them go off either Long Beach or Dana Point and bluefin are hitting big time right now. And I, I think the bluefin specifically is a real interesting conversation, especially when it comes to conservation, because bluefin's gotten a really, um, it's gotten a lot of attention, right? Because it's it's virtually extinct commercially that, you know, as a pelagic species, highly migratory mm-hmm. and um, really hard to manage because you have multiple jurisdictions it can be in one country's waters one day and another the next day but the local species of bluefin tuna is actually well managed by the national marine fishery service um part of NOAA, and is the populations are are at, um you know a real sustainable biomass so um that's a fish that we love to support the local fishermen and serve out of the restaurant yeah have you heard much about um the Marine Land Protection Act restrictions. I know you've probably been in California for a good time, but they want to place actually further restrictions. This is more for a recreation, but I bet the commercial anglers will be adversely affected by this too. But I, I've seen this in like, California. Everyone knows it's pretty crazy, but like to even make fishing a lot more restrictive, have, have uh, your contractors complained about those restrictions or further regulations on that too? Even though they follow the guidelines, they're not catching more than they're allotted um, each year. So what is kind of the thoughts of people there that your suppliers? Yeah, well, the suppliers are, you know, since most of them are really small boutique, um, you know, it doesn't affect them as much, but I know that a lot of the commercial fishermen obviously take issue with that, um, MLPA and the, there's, you know, I mean, there's obviously science on all sides of this. There's certain restrictions. I, I, I think, I think in California, it's been just like, politics anywhere right i mean it's so polarized and you know tribalized and you kind of dig in on both sides and it's hard to find compromise and and i think in california that's happened between the commercial fishermen and a lot of those in the um on the environmental side that are putting that are that are lobbying for these restrictions to be put in place and you know for us it's like we we want to protect the ocean but we also want to we want to have a healthy um you know vibrant economy surrounding the ocean so there's certainly um, a push and pull when it comes to the ways in which you can control and manage that, right? So um, for me, I always revert back to this conversation about um, aquaculture, uh, stock fortification, and I think creating jobs through open ocean aquaculture, especially along the California bite line. So for, for me, it's kind of, it's been difficult watching commercial fishermen um, avoid engaging in that conversation when a lot of what they can be doing is transferring some of their 
assets and um, their strengths into possibly supporting the aquaculture side of this. California right now doesn't necessarily, because it's federal waters, they don't have really, we overall, we don't have the framework for an open ocean aquaculture policy. A lot of it's done from the Department of Fish and Game in that, like, right on that coastline there. But there are some absolutely amazing aquaculture projects that are done here. Um, so um, a lot of that, sorry, I, I digress, but, you know. No, no, that, that's that's very fascinating. Continue, yeah. Just, just varying interests, right, um, as is always the case. And, um, you know, I always make the joke. I say, what, when, does, uh, when does a developer become an environmentalist? <laughs> and uh, the answer is when they buy their house at the beach. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think we see some of that too here in California, especially because when it comes to salmon, for example, you notice they breed in freshwater, right? So they swim upstream. Their breeding grounds are actually what are being destroyed. It's not the effect of, it's not what's happening in the ocean. It's the breeding grounds that have just been completely decimated because they've been converting the water rights, um, thus eliminating really any industry for California salmon. Yeah, and also I think predatory California sea lions were also a problem too on top of those environmental strains as well. I think uh, one of the few bipartisan laws that Congress got together and agreed with, and I think this impacted the Pacific Northwest, but probably anywhere where there's a vibrant salmon fishery, uh, but more specifically the Pacific Northwest region, where they, they made it so that you can amended the Marine Mammal Protection Act, where you can actually... Um, I think local tribes and state agencies can uh, cull numbers because they're very voracious and they love salmon too. So <laughs> they have that in place too for certain yeah. areas that are uh, overburdened. Yeah. Uh, you know, scientifically, and I always wondered this, was was there a boom in the population of the, of the sea lions as a result of the a decrease in population of sharks? I always wonder about that biodynamic relationship mm-hmm. um, because, you know, with sharks being so overfished. Right. I don't know about in this case, I just know that probably this law, kind of like an Endangered Species Act law, uh, when it's placed in and there's no management after the species has been recovered or brought back to healthy levels, sometimes they kind of just get out of control and they they prey on salmon, <laughs> endangered salmon. In yeah. this. So that's what I saw it with there. And actually, speaking of salmon, I don't know if you've seen this or if you would be open to this, because I know you like and, and have talked at length about supporting fish farming efforts, but it was just announced in uh, Maryland's eastern shore starting, I think, next year. They're going to open up the first private salmon farm in the United States to kind of uh, offset the reliance on foreign salmon. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be like a multi-billion dollar project. And it's really fascinating. So I was curious if you like those type of efforts. and Because it's not going to be um, recreational or, or um, commercial so much. They, they will sell it in stores. But um, it's not going to, they're not going to intertwine with uh, anything in the wild. It's a, a land-based actually program too. Not so much in the Bay. Uh, but they're going to be creating a, a operation uh, across the river in the East for doing that. Yeah, most, you know, there, there's been a huge push for behind a lot of the land-based salmon um, farming. What I've seen, though, is that, and and I don't want to be contrarian, but I just don't know if there's a long-term financial sustainability because the energy input and cost of doing land-based when you've got na- a natural environment utilizing the ocean when done properly. Um, like, they're talking about, it, you have to have such massive scale. And I love, I love, I've tried so many of these land, these farm salmon products that are all through um, closed contained 
aquaculture and and they're they're amazing right so i'm not complaining as a consumer um what i've found really fascinating is the uh is this stock fortification piece right so if you, you go on the alaskan um department of fishing game you can see upwards of 60 percent of all the seafood in alaska a salmon starts off in hatcheries right mm-hmm. so you can fortify these stocks and i trust me i get a lot of I, I get a lot of uh, slack for for bringing this up. That's why ASME, the Alaskan Seafood Marketing Institute, probably doesn't like me. Um, <laughs> but um, because they 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 market it all as Alaskan wild, which is fine, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not 100 percent wild if it starts off in a hatchery, right? That's it's it's fortified because um, they release them into the wild and then they fit they catch them commercially. And I think it's a beautiful mechanism through which they can keep those stocks vibrant and alive and Alaska, geez, they do a, an unbelievable job managing their fisheries. But if we can see some more of that stock fortification, they do it, uh, in the, so in SoCal with the, um, familiar with the white sea bass. Yeah. I, I think I remember that species, but I didn't know they do that for them. That's interesting. Yeah. The white sea bass went commercially extinct in the eighties. Um, and then they started a program at hubs, um, the hubs research to do to fortify it right so you have these grow out pens they have them right here in huntington beach it's funny right in the harbor they have all these grow out pens and then once again they just release them into the wild so they're fortifying these stocks and uh now the stock is like at its maximum sustainable yield you know decades later it's a real fascinating success story wow that's cool yeah because i think a big conversation i've been seeing in the fishing industry and conservation is how you can find these um, innovative means to, let's say, maybe uh, locally sourced salmon kind of through these private farms and uh, whether or not private technology can come in and actually help correct a problem or uh, a government problem. And I think that's a really good direction that environmentalism is heading because when you rely on it so much, and you probably understand and relate to this viewpoint too, when the government comes in, oftentimes it can uh, further hinder uh, certain progress or certain enhancement of species. Um, so it, it's been very interesting to see that. I don't know how the salmon farm in Maryland is going to go, but I was very piqued by it, uh, by a friend who sent it to me who works in DNR. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I will say, and I always, I always bring this up with a lot of my friends, you know, as one who's really kind of, um, I, I bounce around from um, party to party, uh, just on various issues. Uh, I, I always say the one unifier amongst most, um, you know, uh, people who are, uh, let's say, from the perspective of at least a hobby interested in politics is is seafood, right, or food in general. Like it's a real, it's a real common denominator, and it can um, bring people together. That's always my joke about food, food politics. I'm going to start a new party, political party. But um, if you look at like Drake's Bay oysters and the way in which the federal government has stepped in and shut down some of these oyster farms, which is just unbelievable because, I mean, as you know, oyster farming is like the most environmentally, it almost has a negative footprint, right? Because it's so environmentally friendly. Um, And what you can do cleaning, actually cleaning the ocean with oysters and producing, uh, you know, a high quality food item, uh, you'd think there'd be oyster farms just peppered throughout the entire exclusive economic zone, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And I think it kind of goes to this like local war movement where people want to like uh, create something sustainable here. They want to employ local people. I keep seeing this on the Chesapeake. Like they had, they have it for oysters. I think they have it for scallops too. I think there's a burgeoning scallop market on the yes. Eastern shore and uh, for the Chesapeake Bay too. So 
um, or lower Chesapeake Bay towards the ocean. And uh, it's really interesting to see people still engaging in those waterman activities, um, despite just kind of uh, competing forces or just maybe the phasing out of the industry. Yep. Yep. And it's going back to what you mentioned about when the government steps in, um, you know, I always talk about the unintended consequences of the, you know, such a strong arm getting involved in industry. And I had post, posted this on my social the other day. And I use this as a prime example because it's really relevant to our time right now is, is that when COVID hit, all the businesses were relegated to using these third party delivery outlets. So government stepped in and started saying, OK, well, we're going to do the right thing and we're going to cap the fees that these delivery platforms are are allowed to charge businesses, right? Okay, good intention because 30% out of my pocket, that's not just my net profit, that's 20% putting me into the red if I'm a 10% business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the government steps in and says, okay, well, now we're going to mandate it. So what the businesses did, right, your Uber Eats of the world was they said, okay, well, now we're losing our revenue. So how are we going to make up for that? So they stopped marketing businesses on their platform to save the money, right? Because they had to cut corners too. And what it ended up doing was it ended up driving business away from the small local businesses because they didn't have the namesake value when you went on the platform. And then it increased sales for your big chains because it already had that national branding awareness. So in doing and now taking a step back, they come in to help the little business but it ended up hurting the little business. The con- the idea was good, but the unintended consequence was that it ended up pushing the little business further down that um, kind of marketing chain within the platforms themselves. The same happens in the environment too. Yes, <laughs> that's why everyone says government that is best is one that governs least <laughs> yeah. for more efficiency most of the time. I, I would say most of the time that's kind of how I feel about it. With uh, Obviously, you posting with your kids and your family, uh, have you taught them how to do sustainable stuff? And do you take your kids fishing too or, or to the outdoors? I saw that you posted that you guys went to the Redwood Forest. So how integral is it to, to kind of keep your kids aware of what's going on and how to foster true uh, stewardship, um, even through someone like yourself who works in the food industry? Yeah, that's a great question. And and, it, and it's so valuable and important. So, you know, the beauty of being so close to such an amazing aquarium, like the Aquarium of the Pacific and being so involved in it is that from a young age, the kids were able to really explore on alongside the, the education arm of this, right? Of course, kids going to an aquarium, it's about look, touch, see, feel. It's just about a lot of colors and things underwater, but they're slowly learning. And that same effect applies in life. We always take the kids absolutely everywhere. Um, for us, you know, we're not an iPad family. Don't get me wrong. It definitely helps from time to time. That's good. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's about just like their education, getting muddy, getting dirty. Um, uh, you know, I joke and I post on social, you may or may not have seen it with like the kids doing the dishes and working in the restaurants, but um, I mean, that really is their education right now. Like they do come to the restaurants with me every single day. They go out when I'm picking up the fish. When we got that bluefin, um, you know, the guy called me, it was like 10, 15 at night and, um, shame on me as a father. I definitely don't put the kids to bed early. Um, I let them sleep in, but, um, I was trying to get my son to sleep and I get this text message and I'm just like, heck, heck, you know, he's coming with me to the restaurant. So we drive all the way restaurant and these guys pull up with their trailer in their full boat the fish are in the boat still. Um, and you know, my son gets to experience that and see it and, you know, break down the tuna with me and touch it and feel it. And then the whole ride home, we get to talk about kind of the history of the species and how they live. And then 
then he wanted to watch videos of it. And then his sister wanted to understand about what they eat and then all the little fish. So it's so important. Um, and, and, uh, but they got to see it. They've got to touch it. You know, they've got to engage with it. It is so true because I feel like I don't have kids yet, but if I do one day, I would probably be like no technology for you. You got to get your hands dirty. You got to go fishing. You got to see nature. You got to enjoy it. And that's really good that you get your kids uh, involved in that because so many, I see like friends, kids, and they're giving them these like tablets and they're not even like two, three years old. And I'm like, Oh, what are you doing? You can be doing this. Like, take them out to nature do something more productive. So they don't have their intellectual growth stunted. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. The tablets help from time to time. Sure, so, yeah. um, but what's nice is that if you can use them as a tool alongside, right. Sure. So for example, yeah. you know, when you, when, when they're, when my son is asking all these questions about the bluefin tuna to then be able to pull out a YouTube video right, and right. show him the tuna underwater and, or, you know, what a purse seine net is and how they overfish and have bycatch within that fishery, like in the Spanish fishery. Right. I showed him and then he's like, why is it called a per net? And it's like, you know, you explain to him about these different fishing methods. And then indirectly, they just learn about bycatch. So it's kind of nice to explain it and then show them utilizing these 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 tools, but definitely not a crutch. And uh, it's, um, yeah, it, it's cool because like we were up, um, we were up at uh, Big Sur and um, you, they de- didn't touch their eye. They never even asked for them, you know, like they, they all they want to do is walk and explore and go on the beach and see the... Um, what are they? The, uh, the elephant seals. I don't know if you've ever been up there or not. Um, I think I did when I was a kid. I don't remember elephant seals. I remember uh, kind of going below Big Sur. It's been a while. I, d- I only went to NorCal like maybe two or three times. <laughs> it, was my, it was my first time up there because I'm not from California. My wife, yeah, yeah. They, have, they have the huge Hearst Castle there. And yeah. he was really into exotic animals. So you're driving along the coast. And on the left side, you've got these elephant seals, which are just unbelievable massive species yeah. and then you look to the right and there's zebras zebras running in a field with like free-range cattle and you're like where where the heck am i california we we yeah. i mean there's a lot of great uh i mean i know some people don't like zoos but i learned a lot and lo- developed my love of animals from going to the san diego zoo and the escondido wildlife park i, I think people misinterpret what those are too and, and how valuable those are you can see like a confluence of exotics and then like your domestic uh animals, yeah. animals. It's, a, it's a good yeah. thing california has yeah definitely definitely all right, Chef Rule, where can everyone connect with you, uh, check out your business and support you or or become patrons of uh, Slapfish? Um, well, I'm under Chef Rule on Twitter. Um, my Instagram is Andrew Gruhl. Slapfish is at Slapfish across all the platforms. Um, yeah, I mean, if anybody's got any questions, they can email me, just my name, Andrew Gruhl at gmail.com um, or swing by any of the restaurants and allow me to give you a tasting. That's awesome. Very cool. This has been so much fun. I am so glad uh, that we got to chat and just you're just a repository of information. You know so much more, I think, than uh, most people do when it comes to sustainability and sourcing seafood and why seafood is amazing. Thank you so much, Chef Girl, for speaking. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. What did you think of our conversation with Chef Andrew Gruel? I'd really love to learn your thoughts on it. And if you want to leave your thoughts, you can go to the review section on apple podcasts to do that i would love your feedback and if you're new to the podcast just discovering us you can find us on facebook instagram and twitter as well that's where i post guest announcements clips previewing episodes or advertising episodes and many other updates as it relates to the podcast you can also like i said find us on apple podcasts spotify 
and many other platforms where the podcast is supported. I also post episodes on my personal blog, so you can find us there too. But find us, engage with us, download past episodes, and chime in with your guest suggestions. I have, I think, two to three more really cool interviews coming to the pipeline, and I will try to resume some monologue podcasts, but I really have been on this kick of interviewing people, just giving a voice to unique storytellers across conservation, ranging from people who are in the field hunting and fishing to those preparing food to those working in media and everywhere in between, and even lawmakers too. We don't want to forget those. There are actually many good lawmakers that I'm going to try to highlight here on the podcast as best as I can. Thank you so much for listening to District of Conservation. Thank you for joining us. And we look forward to welcoming you back to the podcast soon. Catch our next episode with Nick Hoffman this Monday and many more to follow.